Welcome back to Brandon Wilborn's Fantasy Fiction, where fans of classic fantasy adventures can hear the serialized audiobooks of a fellow nerd and indie author completely for free. I'm your author, narrator, and host, Brandon Wilborn. Hey, thanks for listening today. I really appreciate the support, and the, I hope you're enjoying the story. The story portion of this episode starts right after the recap. Last time in the Treasure of Caprick, Tobin and Reese helped guard the gates against Fallon's attack only to be drawn away by the king's beacon before the main assault. Things are heating up here for a big fight, so let's get to it. This week I will be reading chapter 25. Now I present for your enjoyment, The Treasure of Caprick. Chapter 25 The Steward King The aroma of oily smoke saturated the air of the canyons. Captain Fallon breathed deeply and thought fondly of the many times he had torched the home of a rebel or thief and waited for them to run out into the arms of his soldiers. Always he felt satisfied to have completed his mission, whether he captured the criminal or burned them alive. The method was so familiar to him that he could see the gate burning in his mind, even though he had withdrawn his men around the corner of the gorge. No reason to expose his men to the possibility of random arrow fire. The light flickering on the walls of the narrow crack told him how intense the blaze was. It waned by midnight, and he peered around the corner to assess the damage. Though he saw gaps between planks, the fire was still too high, and the wood might still be very tough to break through. He decided to wait another hour. In the meantime, he sought out the soldier that was injured by an arrow in the first volley. He was no older than Fallon was when he had volunteered for the army. Someone had already pushed the arrowhead through and bandaged the leg, but he could tell he was in pain from the panting and thick sweat. What's your name, soldier? Irving, sir. I know you joined me in Wales, Anne, Fallon said, kneeling so he could see his face. Are you from there? Yes, sir, Irving said through short breaths. Then I can be honest with you, young Irving. You know what a wound like this does to a man when a surgeon is not available. It wasn't a question. Irving nodded. He gets a stick leg, if he's lucky. That's right, Fallon agreed. And I want you to be lucky, Private Irving, but I need your help. How's that, sir? Surgeons are expensive, and the taxes coming to our lord can barely keep the healthy soldiers provisioned. However, he would spare no expense to save a hero. A man who risked his life to save his companions. That man would be invaluable as an inspiration to others. Can you be that man, Irving? Irving laughed a little through his pain. I figured I'd die out here regardless, sir. What did you need? Good man, Fallon smiled. I need that gate brought down. Shortly after one in the morning, Fallon helped Irving to mount a horse. Better to risk an injured man and another beast than a good sword, he told his lieutenant quietly. He tied a piece of blanket over the horse's head, then led it around the corner and handed the reins to Irving. The remaining soldiers waited behind them on horseback, ready to charge. You'd do best to jump at the last moment, Private. If I'm lucky, sir, Irving replied. Then he kicked the horse into a gallop. Fallon leapt onto his own mount and watched in anticipation as horse and rider barreled toward the fiery gate. Irving did try to jump from the horse, but his bad leg ruined his balance. 
He rolled to the right and bounced on the ground before crashing against the stone archway. In the same instant, the blinded horse crashed into the barrier. The burnt wood shattered and the gates flew open at the impact of a half-ton of horse meat. Exactly to Fallon's plan. Charge! Fallon yelled, then spurred his own horse full speed toward the same burning portal. The king walked Curian through a wider tunnel, into a cave the size of a large common room. It was filled with cabinets, chests, and other furniture, and looked for all intents and purposes like the hiding place for a successful highwayman. Curian shivered when he felt the warmth of the large fire in the center of the room, not realizing that he had felt chilled in the hagiary. You keep saying you chose me, he said, and now you say I've chosen some path, but I don't understand it. I doubt you would have taken so much trouble just to have me walk through some mystical vision door. Tell me for what purpose you chose me. The king watched him for a moment, as if sizing up a sparring partner. Then he held out a hand, inviting Curian to sit at a table. The answer to that is wrapped up with the other questions that have been treading the holes of your mind for the last hour. When Curian did not reply, the king continued. How did Pollingham become as it is now? Why is the sun covered and the river dry? Why are the Avacians ruling instead of the kings? Instead of me? Curian had not voiced the questions, but they were on his mind. He nodded agreement. From what I know of you, your mind is habitually more dexterous than this, said the king, breaking his gaze. Yet the deep mysteries confound even the wise. Does it have to do with the prophecy you spoke before? Curian shivered again when he remembered the reverberation of the king's voice in the small cave. The king nodded, appearing pleased. The answer begins with leadership, for the people will follow their shepherds. Thus it is more important to know who, or what, shepherds the leaders. Finn rose because King Frederick was a righteous man devoted to justice, truth, and freedom, rooted in the treasure and protected on your hill. Curian did not need further explanation. Frederick's shepherds were the founders of the Order, Sage Bennett and Ward Finley, both men of unimpeachable character. Each performed with the skill and wisdom that qualified them to guide a king, and their thaumaturgy only confirmed it. The king asked, Did you know that Capricill was once called Shepherd's Knoll? But did not wait for an answer. It is why the vision of the treasure and the oak was given there, and why Frederick made it the Order's home so you would be shepherds of the people. From atop the hill, the monks were intended to be an example of holiness lifted up, and a place from which learning and blessings could spread out to all the people, even to the king himself. The blessings stopped flowing when the book was locked away, and the order became increasingly focused only on the happenings of the hill. The rule created by Sage Capric merely codified the chill settling in their hearts. In time, it froze them solid. As the rule overshadowed the treasure, the shepherds stopped leading. They became blind guides if they were guides at all. The results were first visible in Frederick's grandsons, who lacked wisdom and weakened the kingdom through incompetence. The sickness spread in their sons, who became shrewd, perverting knowledge and justice for their own gain. That was when politicians like the Evasius family suddenly appeared and gained influence. When the leaders lost their bearings, the people followed. Corruption and evil ruled in their hearts, 
and God allowed that corruption to pollute the land to show the product of their desires. They lived for darkness, so darkness came upon them. They could not slake their thirst for wealth or power or pleasure, so the river dried up and the land went thirsty. It was only through God's compassion that enough rainwater and filtered light remained to grow food, otherwise the plains would have perished altogether, becoming as desolate as these canyons. The king wept without shame, showing the same emotion he had when telling his own story, except that this time Kurian found himself weeping as well. The story astonished him, and tears of sorrow and compassion flowed freely for his country. He understood now that the man had not been weeping for his own death, but for a people he loved who had fallen so low. Forty soldiers galloped behind Fallon with sword, shield, and bow. A warning cry came from within the gates, and then the shout pouring from his men overpowered all other sound. Across the open courtyard he saw the hastily constructed barricade silhouetted by two large bonfires inside. The bandits were not stupid. They had prepared. Without thinking, he counted the points of firelight reflecting on metal that hovered above the secondary defenses. Twelve. Others might be hiding further behind cover. Maybe double. Plus a handful of archers likely hiding on the flanks just behind the wall. Odds were good. He heard an arrow fly overhead, and one of the bright metal points fell with a clatter. His own archers had stopped before the gates to suppress the defenders for a moment. They took down another. He closed his eyes tight as he approached the smoke and fire. Then he was through the gate, only yards to the barricade. He ducked as he passed the threshold and felt the whistling wind of another arrow cross over his shoulder, hidden archers on the flanks, as expected. Fan out, he roared. Take the wall. He saw the dark trench in front of the barrier and meant to stand in the saddle and vault himself over the top with his momentum. A blow from behind caught him by surprise, and he faltered. Speed drew him off balance as the horse veered away from the wall of carts and wagons. He rolled over one shoulder, landing on hands and knees in the trench. A shout of rage began deep in Fallon's chest. He sprang up to attack the unseen foe, and the shout died on his lips. His men had vanished. And so had the defenders. He was alone in the circle between gate and barricade. The demolished gate still burned on its sagging hinges, but he heard no sound from it. Then he thought there was movement or noise around him, but it was like wisps of dust blowing by. He turned around and saw nobody on top of the wagon at his back either. Turning once more, a white light suddenly shone through the stone archway, blinding him and filling the smoky air with light brighter than day. It seemed as if a more intense fire of red and gold hovered in the air above the arch. It held the shape of a crown. There were warnings that the people would suffer for their injustices, the king said when both of their tears had dried. Warnings repeated over an age. However, this time your order locked them away underground. That was until I brought them out again, because the time has come. Time for what? Kurian asked. For new shepherds, shepherds ready to fight against the darkness by feeding the people with knowledge and understanding instead of terror and avarice, ones who know the darkness for what it is and choose the light. You want me and my friends to be these shepherds? Shall we re-establish the order and rebuild? The prospect thrilled Curian more than he would have expected. Finally, the order could return to its former purpose and glory. They might even live up to the stories his father had always told him. You will be shepherds, the king said, but not as monks. 
Then what? Corian asked, confused. The Brotherhood is all we know. Are your ears still closed to the prophecy? Or is it your heart? The king said gently. The time has come for this part to be fulfilled. The land has been dark and thirsty for a long time, but it will not be forever. It requires only the release of the three. You know the deer, and you know the brute. You can explain those with your mind. Tell me what is left. Curian wanted to look away, but the king's firm gaze held him. The princely son, he said quickly, and turned his head. He did not know why everyone assumed that title was his, but he did not like the implications that went with it. Did you think that your surname meant nothing, Curian Abramson? Prince is a fitting title for a son of the exalted father. Curian closed his eyes and listened to his own rough breathing and speeding heart. Do not forget that you stepped through the door, despite your fear. What would you have me do? Curian shouted. Speak plainly, I beg you. I wish you to rule, the king said with some of the regal presence from before, to be king in my stead. I am not fit for such an honor, Curian bowed his head. The things I have done pursuing this treasure, being drawn in by Evasius, killing those soldiers and then abandoning my friends. His voice trailed off in shame. I know all you've done, the king nodded, his face full of compassion. And more than you remember. Tobin was right that it can be forgiven. It is forgiven. I came in part to settle that. Nothing you've done is unusual for mankind. King Frederick was imperfect, yet God used him. In the same way, I choose you, despite your past or future errors. You are the rightful king, said Curian, pleading. Yet you also have a distant claim to the throne. The proof is secured within a safe place for the time it is needed. The king rose from his chair and stood by the fire. I understand your hesitation. It will cost you much. Curian also rose, but paced. You're asking me to sit in your place. I could never rule half as well as you. I couldn't inspire people the way you do with Louise, Alden, and Gideon. I can't heal the way you do. I only know the rule, and you seem to know even God's will. And I thought I had lost faith in God until today, until I met you. I'm not asking you to be me, and you will not be alone. I'm asking you to take on my authority, the king responded. Would you begrudge me the right to give what is mine as I see fit? Hurrian paused mid-stride, then shook his head and continued pacing. Then allow me to give you this trust, for the people need a king, and it is not yet time for me to return to Pollingham's throne. In truth my kingdom is much greater than the plains, and in many lands I have already enlisted the help of others to rule. At the appointed time, when all my enemies are brought low, I will return as king over them all. As he spoke, the imperial bearing returned completely, but without the threatening manifestation from before. Though he stood still, the king's presence filled the room with graceful majesty. Until then, the king continued just above a whisper, This is the purpose for which I chose you, and the reason I called you out from your former life. 
Quirion stopped pacing when he realized that by stepping through the door he had already agreed to the king's vision. His heart had committed his feet before his mind could object. Going back on that decision would be the same as renouncing his oath to protect the treasure, especially now that he knew its true value. This time, an act of will was required to persist in his choice. He kneeled before the king, who reached out and laid a hand on his bowed head. Then Curian spoke the words that always completed a prayer in the order, words that combined a request, hope, and submission to God's will. Let it be. Fallon staggered back against the wagon because of the great light and held his sword up in defense as a figure stepped through the gate. Soft footsteps were the only sound he heard. Immediately he thought he knew what had happened and lowered his sword. Am I dead? Was I hit by an arrow or struck down from behind like cattle? No, you're not dead, the figure said. You are simply experiencing what my servant Xander warned you of. You're the king of the caves, Fallon said. Yes, said the figure, and then he came into full view as he stepped forward. He wore an armor of white metal above a radiant linen robe. Crimson stains had wicked up from the hem as if he had waded through the blood of an army, but he carried no visible weapons. Fallon lifted his sword, intending to charge, but his hand came up empty. The sword was simply gone. I thought you wanted to avoid unnecessary bloodshed, the king said. You're the one who killed so many of our soldiers, or made them crazy, Fallon said. He tried to lift his arms and step forward to fight hand to hand, but found he had no strength to move. According to muddled reports from your spies, said the king, a person who disappears is not necessarily dead, Captain. Sometimes they wish not to be found. Then what did you do to them? I simply spoke with them, as we are now. And while we are speaking, I am having similar conversations with the men who came with you. To those who want my help, I give it. What about the maniacs who return like animals? Fallon asked with scorn. He would not let this man pretend he acted out of compassion. The criminal studied him for a moment with a gaze that seemed to pierce his thoughts. Not even Muna could see so deeply into him. Unintentionally, memories of his life began to flash in his mind, particularly those of cruelty and hatred. A multitude of faces in the pain of death, a myriad of naked bodies never capable of patching up his soul the night after. I have a knack for destroying self-deception, the bandit said, and revealing what men truly fear about themselves. Fallon remembered with uncanny vividness his blind meeting in Lord Avatius's office. He felt again his master's hot breath whispering in his ear. They were reminded of their darkest deeds, said the King of the Caves. Your men did not lose their minds because of anything I did. Their own consciences drove them mad with guilt because they were unwilling to renounce the evil they had done. The ones who did went free and began new lives. The ones who didn't sided with their own madness. He stepped closer until he was face to face with Fallon. I can sense the same struggle within you, Captain. Fallon felt a knot in his throat as he realized that he was as helpless now as he was to resist Muna. This is the worst sorcery yet, he said, straining against invisible bonds. It is power, yes. 
but not the sort of magic to which you have become accustomed. He was surprised when his interrogator looked thoughtfully at his right side, where Muna had slipped her talisman between his ribs. I will not beg for my life, or my mind, Fallon spat. Then how may I help you? The sorcerer said with a mocking expression of innocence on his face. You are a criminal. There is nothing you could offer me. What about freedom? The fiend gestured to the fresh scar in his side. Fallon did not answer. If you wish, I can break the tie that binds you to her. The lump in his throat tightened, making breathing difficult. The thought of sleeping without dreaming of the witch and the things she asked of him, it almost broke him. But he would not be turned. He stared into the eyes of his new tormentor and let him see all the hate built up behind them. Silently he dared the king to release him. The magician climbed easily to the top of the barricade, and Fallon found he could move again. He turned to face his enemy, and the sensation of surrounding movement returned. There were phantoms all around, and the sound of clashing metal. I see you are not ready to be free, the king said, looking down on Fallon and yet you are strong enough to face your own depravity. Therefore I will grant you the bondage you desire. However, I think you will find my friends infinitely more tolerable as captors. The king dropped behind the barrier, and the light disappeared, returning Fallon to a night lit by the fires of war. Around him his soldiers were in disarray. Some had fled, but most writhed and blubbered on the ground like the lunatics who had returned from the outlaws' raids. A few were on their knees in a position of surrender, and several more fought with manic rage against foes real and imaginary. Finding his sword back in his hand, he intended to join those still fighting and take as many with him to death as possible. Before he could move, three bodies landed on him from behind and knocked him to the ground. He thrashed with wild fury, but more men grabbed at his limbs. In a few moments they had him disarmed and bound. They also bound the remainder of his men and forced them to the ground beside him. And then an old man in a dirty tunic made of hair approached them. I warned you, said Xander. Fallon bowed his head, and the victorious cheers of the defenders drowned out the stream of curses spewing from his mouth. Evasius's knight has been captured and taken off the board. Curian has a new mission. Join me next Friday as we find out how that mission begins to collide with Evasius's march on Apiford, as the treasure of Capric continues. Thank you again for listening to the show. I, I don't have anything extra this week for the uh, after after the story portion, but if you're enjoying the story, please give it a five-star rating and review if those options are available in your app then please share the show with anybody you know who enjoys a fantastical tale. If you've got comments or questions, I'd really love to hear from you. You can send me a message or leave me a voicemail at brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact. That's Brandon, not Brandoff, and Wilborn is as simple as you can make it. W-I-L-B-O-R-N. Again, I really appreciate any feedback you've got, uh, so just go to brandonwilborn.com forward slash contact and you can Leave me a message or uh, send me your lovely voicemail. And while you're there, you can see what other stories I've got uh, already published or potentially in the works, including a, a free story that you can get for signing up for my email updates. Again, that's brandonwilborn.com. 
That's all for this week. Until next time, Godspeed. The Treasure of Capric is also available in print and ebook formats from all major booksellers. Find a link to your favorite retailer in the show description or go to brandonwilborn.com. This has been The Treasure of Capric, Book One of the King of the Caves, written and narrated by Brandon M. Wilborn. Copyright Brandon M. Wilborn, 2019-2023.